Well, it turns out I got to learn a little bit about abundant mercy uh, firsthand this week. I decided, without asking my wife, that I would cut uh, my daughter Willa's hair. And uh, it's a wonder I'm standing here with legs that are operational, fully operational. Um, she has forgiven me and has extended uh, a, a, a abundant amount of mercy. I think it looks cute, but uh, coming into this sermon, I felt like an expert on what real mercy feels like, friends. I do, I do want to connect this, though, to uh, earlier in our series here in Exodus. Uh, in the first sermon that I preached, it was uh, August 27th. I talked about the Exodus story being identity-shaping for the people of Israel. Identity-shaping. And when I say Exodus story, I don't mean the whole book of Exodus, but I mean the liberation of the people of Israel from Egypt in their journey to the land of Canaan, that story. Now, there's one statement toward the end of my introduction in that sermon that I'd like to perhaps modify. Then I said that the Exodus is arguably the most identity-shaping story in Israel's history. That's what I said. But after studying Exodus 32, the golden calf story, I came to realize that that Exodus story is not the only thing that defines Israel. As it turns out, Israel is also defined by something else, which happens, happens to define us, too. So this morning, I'd like to walk through Exodus 32, the golden calf story, and trace its biblical reception, and then conclude with some words of application, words of hope for us today. So that is my plan. Pretty simple, but before we get into it, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for bearing with us as we wander through the wilderness of our lives, grumbling, complaining, forgetting your promises, committing flagrant sins, you forgive us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience, for your love, for your kindness. Help us to fully receive those things this morning and to be conduits of such virtues to others in our lives, please. Be glorified through our time of worship. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus 32, if you haven't already. Exodus chapter 32. As you can see, we've jumped a bit from last week. Exodus 20 was the passage for last week, the Ten Commandments. And so the people of Israel have journeyed uh, to the region of Sinai, where Mount Sinai was. This is the mount on which God revealed Torah, 
the law to Moses, which he then transmitted to the people. And so in Exodus 24, God calls Moses up to the mountaintop to receive the full version of his law to give to the people. But at this point, in chapter 32, Moses has been gone for 40 days. So this, this is the Moses that has guided the people from slavery in Egypt all the way to where they are now, and they haven't seen him for 40 days. That's where our passage begins. So Exodus 32, we'll be reading verses 1 through 14 in the ESV, and I invite you as you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord." And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you." But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger And relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will give, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You may be seated.
So 40 days it had been. 40 days. It's almost six weeks, right? Now it was Moses through whom God rained down plagues upon Egypt, which led to their release from slavery in Egypt. It was Moses through whom God parted the Red Sea so the people could pass through. It was Moses through whom water came from a rock in the wilderness and bread came down from heaven. And now Moses is gone. The people have clearly depended too much on Moses. They say, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, in verse 1, thinking that Moses was responsible for their exodus. They've depended so much on Moses that when he goes away for 40 days and they think he is gone, the people begin to panic. Understandably so, okay? We see, however, in verse 1 that the people are placing their trust in Moses when, in fact, they should place it in God. It was not Moses who led the people out of Egypt. It was not Moses who parted the Red Sea, who gave them water from a rock, manna from heaven. Truly, truly, it was God, the God of Israel. The people, therefore, make a mistake in their thinking right away in depending wholesale on Moses. It makes sense, though, why they come up to Aaron and ask him to make gods for them. I think what they're trying to do is to have Aaron fashion a device that was common in these other cultures through which one would access or discover the will of God. So they've relied upon Moses for their next steps in the wilderness so that they could navigate all the way to the land of Canaan. They've needed Moses for that. And so their idea is that Aaron can fashion for them a a device, and you, you see things like this in the Ark of the Covenant or the ephod later, but especially in, in other neighboring cultures, devices that priests would use, placing hands on them, saying certain words, to try to access the mind of God. Aaron thinks that this can be done in a way that is faithful to Yahweh, I'm at least trying to see him in the best light here. But he asked the people to take off the jewelry. Mind you, the jewelry that they received from the Egyptians when they left the land, all of their gold jewelry, and to bring it to Aaron. And he fashioned it, it says, with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Do you guys remember what the first two... Ten Commandments are. He says, I am God, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Make us gods who shall go before us, they say. 
The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image of anything that is in between the earth and the heavens and worship it. And friends, that's exactly what they do. We see here improper worship. The people abusing the divine name, lying, and thinking that this God that Aaron made in verse 4 brought them up out of the land of Egypt. It says, after, the, after he fashioned the golden calf, they, the people, said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We see a, a flagrant transgression of the first two commandments. And probably the third, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. The entire first section of the Ten Commandments having to do with worship, proper worship, is here disobeyed and dishonored. Aaron, however, is trying to make the most of it. Note that it's the people who say, these are your gods. And then in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, it says that he built an altar before it and made a proclamation saying, tomorrow we shall have a feast dedicated to the Lord. Aaron, I think, is trying to twist this somehow into a uh, celebration of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But it says that the next day the people rose up early and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings And they sat down to eat, common at a feast festival like this, and drink. And it says they rose up to play. Now this verb, to play, does not refer to playing checkers, playing board games, playing basketball. (laughs) Um, This verb, whenever it's used in the Old Testament, refers to sexual activity, sexual immorality. The author, the narrator here gives us every reason to think that this is a kind of orgy, debauchery. Improper worship, friends, leads to improper behavior. It leads to immorality. And we see in the second section of the Ten Commandments this focus on proper society. And when you get the worship of God wrong, it inevitably affects the way that you live. And so the people are devolving into immorality that looks exactly like the neighboring nations. I think the text is trying to tell us that the people have broken the Ten Commandments. I think that's clear. But it's only at this point in the story, verse 7, that the Lord speaks to Moses atop the mountain. After the people rose up to play, after their improper worship led to utter chaos in the community, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you, apparently, brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Already we see God almost distancing himself from the people. 
The people think that it was Moses who brought them up out of the land. And that mistake has led to improper worship, improper behavior. God says in verse 8, they've turned aside from the way that I commanded them, just in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. They've made for themselves a calf and have worshipped it. And in verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people. But then what does he say in verse 10? Friends, God has every right at this point to condemn the people of Israel. They have blatantly broken the covenant. They've transgressed the Ten Commandments. They've dishonored God almost immediately. He could vent His wrath fully on the people right here, right now, and it would be justified. But in verse 10, before doing so, God asks for Moses' permission. Okay. He says, Now therefore, let me alone. Permit me that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Let me do this in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. When God commissioned Moses in chapter 3, the burning bush, God decided to partner with him in this work of liberation, this work of new creation, this work of building his kingdom on earth. At this point, Moses has been asked to join God atop the mountain. He's been elevated, in a sense, to a kind of peer partner with God. God, therefore, allows His kingdom plan to be, in a sense, contingent upon or affected by the opinion of Moses. The grace, the mercy, the accommodation that we see in God's character here is uncanny, friend. This opens the door wide to what we, in the Christian tradition, call intercession. And that is exactly what Moses does. He intercedes as a perfect priest, standing between a guilty people and a wrathful God. Sound like somebody else? And he tries to persuade the Lord to not vent his wrath upon a guilty people. But Moses, verse 11, implored the Lord his God. And he exhibits a few strategies in this persuasive argument. First, he says, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt? I I know the people said that, that I did it, but we all know that you did. God even said before the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses is reminding God of this. These are your people. He then plays on God's reputation, his glory in the world, saying, what should the Egyptians say? 
Should they say that, that the God of Israel uh, brought the people out of Egypt just to toy with them and, and annihilate them in the wilderness? Is that how the world should think of you? And then in verse 13, he appeals to the covenant. The promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses knows that God is a keeper of promises. And so he says, remember. Remember your servants to whom you swore. You said you would multiply their offspring. You would give them this land. Relent, 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 Lord. So Moses implores the Lord, entreats, intercedes for the people. And it says in verse 14, that the Lord relented from the disaster he'd spoken of bringing on his people. In the Greek version of Exodus 32, this relent, this word, is the same root as a word you'll see in the New Testament. It's translated propitiation. You see in Romans 3, the righteousness of God has come. And it's available to all without distinction as long as you trust in Christ. And it says that Christ has been put forth as a propitiation by His blood. The same word. Christ's death, in a sense, functions in the same way as Moses' argument here in satisfying the wrath of God, compelling God to change His mind. For Christians reading this story, it's impossible for us not to see Jesus in Moses' priestly activity. Well, we see, friends, that the people of Israel have quickly transgressed the Ten Commandments. We see that improper worship leads to improper behavior. We see that God has every right to bring judgment down upon his people. But he's partnered with Moses in this ministry, and he leaves room for Moses to intercede. And God listens to Moses, and he relents. God forgives his stiff-necked people, Israel. Well, believe it or not, friends, this story, the golden calf story, is represented, recycled almost, in nearly ten different passages in Scripture. Ten. So we're going to open each one up and read them cover to cover, and no, I'm just kidding. I'm going to do an overview because there are so many, but they do share some common traits. You see this passage represented in Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Nehemiah, the Psalms, Ezekiel, across all the genres. You see it in Acts, I think in the book of Romans, and of course in 1 Corinthians, at least 10 places. I'll give you a sense of some of the uh, interactions we see. Uh, for instance, in, in Numbers, the people are closer to the promised land, and you're probably familiar with a story where spies are sent into the land to scope it out and to bring a report 
to the people before they go in. The spies, in this case, bring a rather troubling report, and the people complain and, and grumble, and they rebel against Moses and Aaron, and the description of that story is almost verbatim with Exodus 32, cast in similar terms. In Deuteronomy, the people are just about to enter the land, and Moses makes sure to remind them that it is not because of their righteousness that God is giving them this land. And he reviews some stories of Israel's past where their unrighteousness has been clear, and of course, the golden calf is one of those stories. If you jump forward a bit to Nehemiah, this beautiful book that describes the return of the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon, their return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. You see the people being led in a kind of communal confession. And they're actually led by the Levites, so the descendants of Aaron and Moses, who'd lead them in a time of confession, thinking about their past sins and God's mercy. And of course, this story is mentioned. We opened the service with Psalm 106, at least an excerpt, and I would encourage you in your own time to read Psalm 106 in its entirety. It's a psalm that praises God for His goodness and love upon a sinful people, Israel. And it refers to this story in Exodus where the people of Israel exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. I think Paul refers to this in Romans when he says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling creeping things. Idolatry in Israel's history, but mercy from God. Even Ezekiel, the prophet, I'm telling you, every genre in the Old Testament Talk about Israel's continued rebellion, even after, after the golden calf. Their continued rebellion against God and God's continued forgiveness. And at least one text I'll mention in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul is talking about these stories in Exodus. And he says that these stories were written for our benefit. And he's talking about his Corinthian readers who are navigating idol worship in Corinth. But he's saying that these old stories are meant to enlighten us today and inspire us and give us guidance in our own lives. I hope it's clear at this point that the Exodus story, the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their journey toward the land of Canaan, the Exodus story is not the only thing that defines Israel. The fact that the golden calf episode reappears in at least 10 different passages tells me that this story was identity-shaping too. Let me ask you this. What Jewish scribe would include the golden calf story 
as he sits down to copy the Hebrew Scriptures. If there is any story to exclude or to accidentally erase, don't you think it would be this one? A story of utter embarrassment, shame, I would say national regret? Then why, why is it cherished so dearly? Well, the only reason that I can think of and I think it's the only reason worth thinking of, is what does this story say about God? What does it say about God? I think Nehemiah says it best, or at least the Levites whom he quotes in Nehemiah 9 say it best. As the people are rededicating themselves to the Lord, hundreds and hundreds of years after the golden calf episode. The text says, Our fathers acted presumptuously, thinking back to this story. It says, They stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You did not forsake them. Even when they'd made for themselves a golden calf and had committed great blasphemies, you, you in your great mercies, did not forsake them. Friends, the golden calf episode is included and emphasized in Scripture because of what it says about God. This means that our God not only delivers from Egypt, from sin and death, our God not only guides to Canaan, to a life of resurrection full of God's Spirit, our God also forgives. He forgives. The golden calf was not the last time Israel sinned. No. They kept sinning and sinning and sinning. You can read about it. But God kept forgiving. And He's never really stopped forgiving. Our God is a God of forgiveness. The life of Jesus displays this for us. We see clearly that our God is a God of abundant mercy. As Christians, sometimes we think we've been forgiven once and for all in the past. That it happened at our conversion. It's a done deal. We don't think about it much. But friends, Jesus, like Moses here, Jesus is interceding for you. Right now, right now, our souls depend on it. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to put money in that plate. You don't have to do anything to make sure he keeps interceding. You just need to trust him. But boy, is he interceding for us right now. We are a forgiven people. Yep. 
but we're also and always being forgiven again, people. <laughs> Let me close with this. God's relationship with his people, and that means Israel and us, his relationship is defined by our sin and his forgiveness. Let us then this morning be humble and be honest and praise God for his abundant mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the clearest display of God's nature for us in a human life lived for us, Jesus. Mercy, love, forgiveness, these are the things we see. You forgive us and you call us to a new life to turn from our death-dealing ways to a life of holiness, to a life of health. But Lord, when we stray, and we will stray, you continue to forgive. How do you do that? Infinite in mercy, abundant in grace, that is what you are. Stretch our hearts and our minds so that we can comprehend that just a little bit more today. We love you, Jesus, but we know that you first loved us. Help us to glorify you in our worship and in our lives today and forevermore. Amen.